This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, I'm Dan Coatesworth. Welcome to the latest edition of the AJ Bell and Shares Magazine Money and Markets podcast. Now, AJ Bell's launched a new investment app called Doddle, which might appeal to people making their first steps with owning stocks and shares. Emma Keywords on the show to explain why Doddle was launched and how it works. Also joining us on the podcast this week is Laura Souter. Hi there. If you're looking to save money but still want to travel, I'll be looking at some of the benefits of taking the train. And I'll also be looking at why Netflix is struggling as a business. And Stephen Tredgett from Oakley Capital is joining us to talk about the world of private equity and why more people are interested in this part of the investment universe. And we'll also hear from AJ Bell Investment Director Russ Mould about share buybacks, how they work, and why they matter for investors. But for now, let's kick off with a look at the markets. Dan, what's been happening? Well, I think over the last week, the FTSE's kind of been stuck in the mud. You've had companies like Rio Tinto, which is sort of typically a key driver of the FTSE 100, particularly in sort of recent months, thanks to strong commodity prices. And it's come out and said it's got a few production issues. I think investors often forget uh, that business about business execution, they just sort of assume that a big company will always do well. I mean, you know, a sector like mining just tend to see sort of periods of operational challenges. Uh, the other sort of big things in the market is the International Monetary Fund cut growth forecasts um, you know, for parts of the world and various geographies because of sustained inflationary pressures. So it's now looking for 3.6% global economic growth in 2022 versus a forecast back in January of 4.4%. Uh, the UK's growth estimates fallen to 3.7% um, and 1.2% next year. And that's down from earlier estimates of 4.7% and 2.3% respectively. And I think the IMF is just warning of that the surging prices of energy and commodities and food caused by the war in Ukraine, coupled with the existing global supply chain constraints, all that sort of means that higher consumer prices could persist for longer than expected. So it kind of implies that 2022 might not be a stellar year for investors. And Netflix has been back in the news. The company is not looking so great. So we had that surge in people signing up to Netflix during the pandemic when we couldn't do anything else. But uh, what's happening now, Dan? Well, it seems they're all cancelling their accounts <laughs> by, by looks of it. I mean, poor old, poor old Netflix. I mean, it, it, the market value of the company has fallen by about 150 billion dollars in five months. Yeah, its share price is halved in value. Uh, so its latest quarterly results, you know, growth is considerably slower. Than expected. Now, it it took away 700,000 accounts because it shut down operations in Russia. But actually, that's nearly the same number of subscribers it lost in the US and Canada in that three-month period, at 640,000. Um, so really, in the last quarter, it only added half a million new subscribers. And it's now warning it could lose 2 million subscribers in the three months to the end of June. So, um, yes, if you think that going back in the the pandemic, all these sort of streaming companies and sort of internet companies really enjoyed the fact that we were all sitting at home looking for stuff to do. Lots, if you've never signed up to Netflix, I couldn't think of another reason why, uh, you know, know, why else you you would probably want to have a look at because you want to think everyone's, I need something to do at home. So let's let's see what Netflix has got to offer. But of course, what's happened in the US, it's pushed up prices. Um, and lots of people are thinking, well, I'm not sure I can afford 
you know, have all these things. You know, I don't know about you, Laura. Have you got Disney, Netflix, Sky, and all that? Sort of... I'm really ballooned over the past couple of years. I think previously I just had Netflix, and now I seem to have that Amazon Prime. I've got Disney Plus because I've got a kid now, and that seems to be an essential thing when you've got a kid. Yes. And then the other day we got Apple TV. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. But only because I've got a free trial of it. Um, yeah, it seems pretty hard to keep up. But I think the thing that might worry Netflix users is they're now talking one way to boost their revenues is cracking down on people that share passwords with accounts. So this is where you have one account and then you give out your login details to all of your mates so they don't have to pay for it. Not a route we advise because it is against the subscription terms and conditions. But <laughs> I think there might be some people in this room that are guilty of doing that. So. Yeah, and it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they're looking at that. They're actually looking at that as an opportunity because they're sort of saying, well, we know there's people who know the platform and love the content. We just need to get them to pay. So rather than sort of, um, I guess, being the sort of the, the password police, they're going to turn around and sort of, sort of implying that they might sort of offer um, some deals. You know, why don't you get a, a sort of enhanced package that includes your family in it as well? So, um, of course, the other thing that they're talking about now is advertising. So saying actually people sort of looking hard at their finances and thinking maybe I can't afford lots of different streaming platforms. How about a version of Netflix that's cheaper than it is now, but it comes with adverts? So I guess the risk there is that lots of people go, that's great, I'll put that with an advert, that's fine, and I'll go switch to the cheaper one. Um, but of course, they actually might get more people subscribing because they're now saying, well, this is now more affordable. So it's a gamble to take, but I think that you know when you're spending gazillions on new content every year um you know with netflix the name of the game is quantity and not quality um they need to get more income than simply that monthly subscription payment so um you know lots going on and it did alarm me that they spent 556 million dollars in three months on marketing wow and they only got half a million new subscribers so uh you know I imagine if you work in Netflix marketing departments, um, you may not feel very comfortable about your job at the moment. So it's, it's you know, something has to change. I guess they're looking at pricing models. They're looking at the sort of, you know, you could call it subscription theft. Um, <laughs> and and I guess they need to be more effective with their marketing. And I guess ultimately that might trickle down to maybe they produce fewer programs, TV shows and movies, and make them better quality. We'll see. But you know, it's, as far as the, the stock market is concerned, massive thumbs down because it's, it's, it's this, it all comes down to this big concept, is Netflix now X growth? You know, if, it can't, if it's losing customers now, it's core market, the US and Canada, then you know, even more pressure on the company to do well overseas. And, and there's certainly some geographic territories where it hasn't been particularly successful. So um, yeah, it's a difficult time if you own Netflix shares. A lot of people appreciate that they need to start saving and investing for big events in their life that need funding. So buying a house or sending your children to university or even paying for retirement. And we've seen loads of first time investors start investing since the pandemic started. But there are still lots of people that have never dipped their toe into investing and find the whole process a bit daunting. So as part of that, AJ Bell has launched a new investment app called Doddle, which 
is hopefully going to appeal to people who haven't put money in shares or funds before, maybe. Um, so to explain all of this and how Doddle works, Emma Keywood is here, who's Senior Marketing and Product Manager, but also just Doddle Guru. So thanks for joining us, Emma. Thanks for having me, Laura. Um, so I think first things first, can you just explain a bit about what Doddle is and maybe how it differs to what AJBL is already offering, but also other products out there? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, people are scared of investing. People find it difficult. People don't know where to get started. And with Doddle, what we really want to do is make investing easier and accessible to everyone. So we've developed a completely jargon-free, no-nonsense, commission-free mobile app. Um, it's designed to be easy to use um, regardless of your investment knowledge and you can build up your investment knowledge along the way because we've got loads of helpful little pop-ups and learn articles and educational help um, to keep, keep you on your way. We've streamlined our investment range so we've got 50 shares and 30 funds which are you know, nicely presented as clear themes or you can just choose your risk level and go on your way and let the experts look after your portfolio for you and I just think we don't want to overwhelm and that's what Doddle is it's really just a really simple app to use um, and we think that it's going to appeal um, to those to those users. So some big things that might stand out to people um, it's only an app isn't it there's no there's no website or um, any of those traditional things is there? No, absolutely. You can do everything um, from your mobile phone. So it's, you know, an investment portfolio in your pocket. You'll get a push notification when things happen on your account to keep you in, in the loop. But it's so straightforward. You, you don't need any of that. You can just open your app and, and see where your portfolio is at. So there was a boom in kind of commission-free trading maps. So things like free trade people might have heard of um, during the pandemic. How does Doddle differ from that? Because I think a lot of people would lump it in with the same thing because you've got that kind of tagline of commission-free. Yeah, and, and free trade has you know, been incredibly popular with, with new investors and they, they've hit that target market. But for AJ Bell, always everything we do is about making investing easier and we see it being long-term investing as well what the apps like free trade offer are trading they offer and advertise um sort of quick returns and you can buy loads of shares and you can deal them in in real time and really for for a longer term investor for someone who's saving for those goals in life like buying a house getting married having kids you know you just want something that's going to provide you the returns that are better than saving in cash, but not be buying and selling every every day. You're not, not a trader. So we really don't want to appeal to those target audiences. And, and we haven't got live share dealing for that reason. So we deal all of our customers' orders once a day at 11 o'clock and you you know get your order the, the following day. So we definitely have gone for a, a different approach, but also offering that range of shares and you know the commission free offer to to bring people in as well. So let's talk numbers. How much does it actually cost, and how does that stack up against um, competitors? Yeah, so we um, we charge 0.15 percent um, of the value of the investments in your account, which sounds a bit long winded, um, but it's actually you know, it's one charge 
Um, it's a percentage, so you, you pay for you know the amount of the service you use. So that's charged monthly, and we do have a one pound a month minimum. But how that stacks up to our other competitors? I mean, it's the cheapest percentage point the on the market. Um, it's the same as as Vanguard's. Um, we don't charge any other charges. So a lot of your apps like Moneybox will charge a one pound fee and then a percentage charge as well. We've just got this this one charge. And actually Free Trade and and some of the other apps have a monthly fee for your tax wrappers or ISAs, so that's ISAs or pensions, and, and that can be up to three pounds a month. So ultimately we yeah, we're one of the cheapest. And can you get things like ISAs, lifetime ISA, pension, all of those things on it? Yes, you can. So you can open up an investment ISA, a lifetime ISA, a general investment account or a pension. Um, so you've got a really wide range of accounts there to suit different financial goals. And around the office, I've been seeing lots of monsters. Can you explain the monsters? So anyone who hasn't seen the branding for Doddle yet, it features a lot of quite cute looking uh, fairy monsters. What's the thought behind that? <laughs> so um, with Doddle, investing needn't be scary. And as you've quite rightly described, our monsters needn't be scary either. They might at first glance, but then you see how fluffy and fun and friendly they are um, and that they're there to help you along your investing journey. Um, and you've got a friendly face. Um, so, yeah, tapping into uh, everyone's kind of nostalgia around Monsters, Monsters Inc., that kind of thing. Um, and they've gone down really well. They've been really popular. And I guess a key question, finally, for um, our listeners is, can you have a AJ Bell U Invest account and also have a Doddle account? Yeah, absolutely. They're completely separate products and they might suit one person to have different products for different um, goals, or um, you might want to move from U Invest to Doddle or vice versa, which will be available um, in the future um, as, as an option to do. Um, so they, they, they sit alongside each other and you can definitely have both. Thanks a lot for explaining all of that to us, Emma. That's quite all right, Laura, and hopefully we'll see you in the app. Laura and Emma there were, did say that there was no website. Now, that's not strictly true. Um, there is a website, doddle.co.uk. Now, you'll get lots of information there. You won't be able to do any transactions. I think that's the key point, isn't it? So, yeah. um, so, so you can either download the app from the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store if you want to do the transactions or if you want more information, find more about it, go to doddle.co.uk. So let's now move on to some money-saving tips. So, Laura, I do see you when I go home that you're standing on the end of the platform taking pictures of locomotives. So I'm hoping that your train spotting <laughs> expertise also extends to finding a bargain on the UK rail network. So. Always. <laughs> um, so there's the Great British Rail Sale, which is probably hard to say after a few drinks, but um, this is the big sale on train tickets that's happening at the moment. So it launched yesterday, 19th of April, um, and it's cut price tickets for a million journeys if you take them between the 25th of April and the 27th of May. So what this is, is trying to encourage people to get back out there and get on trains. And it's the government's 
ploy to try and get more people on train journeys. So at the moment, rail travel is still only around 75% of the levels that we saw pre-pandemic, so it hasn't recovered. And obviously, during the pandemic, when everyone was told to stay at home, rail companies have really suffered. Um, So this is the government's way of trying to get more people out there. It means the prices have halved for lots of journeys. So I'll give you some examples. A single journey from London to Edinburgh would be £22 down from £44. Um, or from Manchester to Newcastle, it's now just over £10, where before it was just over £20. But as always, with my money-saving tips, there are caveats. Mm. Um, firstly, it was pretty popular yesterday. It caused some of the websites of some of the train operators to stall for a minute or two or crash a bit. Um, so lots of people have already taken advantage of it. Um What's annoyed quite a lot of people is that the offer is only available for travel up to the 27th of May, which lots of people with school-age kids will recognise is before half term. It also means that the bank holiday, the Jubilee long bank holiday that we're getting at the start of June, that's not included in it as well. Um, It's only available on advance tickets. It's not available for people that commute, for example. Um, And... Only about 1% of all of the journeys taken during that time are going to benefit from the promotion. Oh, that's not very good. No. So (laughs) great headline grabbing. And great if you can get one of those deals and you wanted to travel and go and see family and friends. The whole marketing from the government around it is you've got friends who might live elsewhere in the country. Why don't you get the train to see them and we'll make it cheaper for you to do so? Um, A little bit strange when we've just had the largest increase in rail fares for nine years, which happened in March. So train fares went up by about 4%, just under 4%. So some might say it's a bit of a marketing gimmick. But good if you were planning a journey anyway and you can get one of the cheaper tickets. Yeah, well, I I went on a train on Good Friday and the conductor made an announcement said it was the first train he'd been on since pre-pandemic that was standing room only because it was absolutely rammed. I guess it was people just going away for the weekend. So Yeah, going away for Easter weekend. But it does seem like um, there are sort of lots of developments with the rail industry as a whole. There's a state-backed um, sort of platform being built for uh, Great British Railways. They, they're sort of creating a central hub to buy tickets. So I don't know, at the moment, you can go onto lots of different rail operators and buy tickets there, or you can use Trainline. Mm-hmm. Um Shares in Trainline um, absolutely soared a couple of weeks ago when they sort of came out and um, they were talking about the commission. There's been a review of the commission that they take on tickets and it, sort of the changes weren't as bad as people were expecting. Um, the big hope for them is that they're going to be the sort of the white label provider for this new sort of central hub. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, um, you know, they might get in a bit of pickle. But I think just overall, I think that, you know, the, the government's looking at the trail, sort of the, the train industry and, and thinking, you know, we must make it easier for people to be able to, to buy a ticket and to use it more. It's more, you know, get people off the roads, really. So, but it's uh, so complicated yeah. at the moment, the types of tickets there are when you have to buy them to get the cheapest rate, but also just so insanely expensive to travel last minute. So we're based in London. Our head office is in Manchester. Sometimes at fairly short notice, we have to go to Manchester. The cost of that train ticket, if, if you, you're buying it personally, is just insane. The, the distance you could fly for the same amount yes. that it costs yeah. you to take hmm. take a train up to Manchester for a few hours is just madness. And I think that's what puts a lot of people off, particularly if you've got a family of four. It's far cheaper to drive or probably even cheaper to rent a car and drive even if you don't own one 
them pay for train tickets for all the families. But I think if you are looking at traveling by train and this offer isn't as useful, my other tips would be um, to look into rail cards. There's loads of different rail cards now, not just for, you know, under 18s or students, Um, lots of family rail cards or ones for couples. Also use cashback websites. They can be really good, particularly for things like Trainline. You can get quite decent rates of cashback quite often on those. So it's time for our next guest. AJ Bell's Investment Director, Russ Mould, is here to talk about the world of share buybacks. Welcome to the show, Russ. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Laura. It's good to be back. Should we start off by asking why do companies actually buy back shares and what are the benefits to investors? All very good questions. In theory, one reason why companies buy back their shares is to suggest that to potential shareholders that they're cheap or to reaffirm to existing shareholders that there's still good value to be had. Another reason is that the company may, bizarre as it seems, uh, have more cash than it knows what to do with. If it's profitable, it's generating plenty of cash and it's covering all of its important bills, development, uh, marketing, capital investment, and it's still left with surplus cash even after dividends, then some companies do decide rather than spray the money around, do a big acquisition or, or just sit on it where it's currently earning not much by way of interest, then they decide that actually they let the shareholders decide what to do with the money by giving it back to them. So what are the potential benefits to shareholders? Well, one, you get a, an additional return of cash, potentially on top of dividends. Although I should stress that buyback programs tend to favor institutions rather than private individuals for, for, for reasons of ease and speed. But if you don't participate in the buyback, well, then at least what happens is your shareholder, your percentage stake in the company, your percentage shareholding goes up so your percentage claim on assets and cash flow goes up. So you may get you know, a, a bigger slice of the dividends going forwards. Now, this all seems pretty positive, but are there any reasons to suggest that share buybacks could actually be a bad thing? Yeah, I, I, think, I think the major one is that companies tend to buy back shares in a fairly price indiscriminate manner. There are exceptions. Next is perhaps the most virtuous example. But you know, as a shareholder, what are you looking to achieve? As an investor looking to buy a, a, a stock or a fund or, a, or an ETF, what happens to be, and in the case of a stock particularly, you're looking to you know, buy low and if, if you ever do sell, sell high. Whereas if you look at the way in which a lot of companies run their share buyback programs, it doesn't seem to matter whether the share price is six quid, 10 quid or 12 quid, that, that they just blindly plow into the market and buy them, which is something that you know would be you know madness for, for a private investor to do. So I think that there is sometimes a lack of price discipline there. Uh, again, Next is an exception. Sometimes companies use debt rather than excess cash flow to buy back shares, which takes you more into the realms of financial engineering, which you know can leave a company you know, potentially a little bit weakened or defenseless if, if something bad happens going forwards. And we've seen that spectacularly in the case of American firms like, like General Electric and Intel. So they're probably a couple of the major negatives. And also, yes, it can signal a company's shares are cheap, but I think that, that impression will be reinforced if, if the company executives be buying money with their own, buying shares with their own money, uh, and the two don't always go together. The, the, the final point is you, shybacks tend to be quite pro-cyclical. When confidence is high, profits are high, and there's lots of cash flow, that's when companies tend to buy more shares. But that's when the share prices tend to be at their highest, say like now, for example. Whereas in, say, 2009 or 2020, after big stock market corrections, there were virtually no buybacks at all. And that actually turned out to be when 
shares are at the cheapest. So what are we seeing at the moment? Is this sort of share buybacks just confined mostly to companies in the US or is this a popular thing with in the UK, say with FTSE 100 companies? I mean, I mean, the, the, the number in the US has been running rampant for several years and, it, and it's still running at around all time high levels on an annual run rate. The UK is, is catching up. The numbers are nothing like as big in the US where you're talking hundreds of billions of dollars. But after Tesco's £750 million buyback announced last week, FTSE 100 firms have promised to buy back £33.5 billion pounds worth of shares in 2022. That's very close to the all-time record of just under £35 billion, uh, four years ago. So you are seeing a, a big uptick. And it's a remarkable turnaround because we just think back two years ago, um, we were all in lockdown um, and companies were, were scratching around for every penny down the back of the sofa to try and make sure that they could see their way through that, 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 that the early surge of the pandemic, they were cutting dividends, they were cancelling share buybacks. So in many ways, you can say, well done to companies. It's a phenomenal transformation. They prepared for the worst, hoped for the best, and the worst didn't happen. And they, they did therefore cut costs, cut capex, generate lots of cash. Um, but equally, it does slightly raise that nagging worry that they're now being a little bit the other way and a little bit free and easy, when, particularly when you know stock and bond markets are starting to gently peer towards the prospect of an economic slowdown or, or in a worst case, even a recession in the next 12 or 18 months. So do companies clearly state what their share back policy is? So will they say if we reach X amount of profit or X amount of excess cash, we'll buy back shares? Or is it much more ad hoc than that? They, it, it, it's it's generally pretty ad hoc, Laura, I'm afraid to say. The company that runs the... the, the, the I mean, they generally say up front, we're going to buy back X hundred million or tens of millions or, or, or even billions, but they don't tend to set, for example, a, a, a price limit. The exact the exception, as I keep saying, is Next, which says it will only buy back shares if it gets what it calls a, an equivalent rate of return of 8%. So, you know, that which is what it's, it, and it measures that by dividing pre-tax profit uh, into the market, in, the, into the market cap. So, you know, once, once the pre-tax profit is 8% of market cap, anything above that, Shares think next thinks they're getting you know pretty decent value. So if the market cap goes down a fair way, that's when they think there is value to be had, and they're pretty disciplined about it. And last time I checked, looking at analyst consensus forecasts for this year and management's forecast, they're currently looking about it in eleven percent um, equivalent rate of return. So maybe next will applying that formula uh, come into the market. Sometimes we see companies whose share prices have fallen try and sort of pull a sort of a rabbit out of the hat, trying to convince investors that their stock is still worth looking at. One way is to be more generous with dividends. Would you say that share buybacks is another sort of technique, uh, a way of sort of getting investors interested again in that share price? It's a possibility. I mean, you, you do have some companies who are under pressure from shareholders because there's been long-term share price underperformance. Aviva, Unilever are, are two classic examples there and there running the second and third biggest buyback programs for, for, for this year so far. Vodafone's in the top 10. Again, a company that's generally, you know, its share price hasn't done very much for a very long period of time. So I, I think there's an element of that. And you see that in the US, um, you know, you've had you know Netflix bought back $600 million worth of shares in, in 2021. And fat lot of good that's done them so far in 2022. But, you, you know, and sometimes you see other things coming in like stock splits which again, cosmetically look quite exciting, but don't actually make a big, big amount of difference net net. So I think there is the risk that these things are being used in a slightly cynical fashion. And in the worst case, and I'm not accusing any of the companies I've just mentioned of this, by the way, you know, if a management team is, is heavily loaded up with stock options or with, uh, with, with bonuses that are triggered by things like earnings per share, then share buyback schemes are potentially one way of massaging that because you can borrow money very cheaply reduce the share count, increase the earnings per share figure and trigger your bonus. So 
they, they can be used in a slightly in a, in a very cynical fashion by the unscrupulous. Um, so it's certainly something that an investor needs to look at if there is a buyback. Is that's the sort of thing maybe just do your homework on. It'll be in the accounts what the, what the triggers are for bonuses, uh, and, and if there is a big uh, relationship with earning a, a, a fairly manipulable figure like earnings per share, then maybe you need to treat it with a little bit more caution rather than, as you said, a company whose share price has, has bombed out. The balance sheet is fine. There's lots of excess cash coming out and the company is buying back shares, you know, close to or even, you know, miraculously below book value or net asset value, then they probably are adding value. And, and the banks, the, the big five banks have actually been disciplined in that respect. They have been buying back shares but they have been doing it at a discount to book value. So in theory, at least, there is a bit of, you know, there is a, a value rationale for that there. Well, that's perfect. Russ, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. So before we move on to our last segment, just a quick reminder, if you would like us to discuss a specific topic on the podcast, or if you have a question that you want us to answer, um, then send an email to podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we will do our best to feature it. Now, private equity has been a lucrative place for investors over the past decade, but it's often a misunderstood part of the market. Investors can get access to the space through shares in various private equity companies such as Blackstone or Bridgepoint, or that they can invest in private equity themed ETFs and investment trusts such as Oakley Capital Investments. So to help you all better understand the world of private equity, Dan recently met up with Oakley Capital partner Stephen Tredgett to hear what they had to say. So private equity has this sort of reputation for being a bit like sort of ruthless asset strippers. They go in, they buy a business, um, you know, they, they suck up its cash flow, starve it of investment before selling it on as quickly as possible. But increasingly, I think that that's an outdated opinion of what private equity is and that the modern day, the sector is completely different. So Stephen, perhaps do, do you want to sort of give us, kick us off by giving us your views on this and perhaps explaining in, in sort of simple terms what exactly private equity investing is about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the first thing to consider is it, it's quite a broad catch to term now. Um, and it starts right from that kind of early stage, kind of angel venture capital investing, you know, shifting to kind of growth impact, buyout funds. And so it, private equity is a big private capital term that talks for any you know, investment in the equity or, or essentially the debt of private companies. Um, most of what we think of when we th- think about private equity, and we think about particularly from the perspective of a retail investor, you know, what's available to them um, to invest in, and particularly in the public markets, then it's particularly buyout funds. And so what we talk about when we talk about private equity buyout funds is essentially these are funds looking to take a controlling stake in a you know kind of lower mid server so company that's let's say 500 million in size up to you know the very large companies which are you know multiple billions in size um, and then the other thing to consider is the kind of scale of private equity because i think one of the things that i think we get an, a perception of is just not only is it kind of sinister asset stripping is just as you described but it's this kind of big overwhelming wave of kind of capital coming in and stealing companies um firstly it's it's relatively small it it invests in a lot more companies than are on the um, public market so to give you an example there let's take the us for example there's eighteen thousand companies backed by private equity in the form that we're talking um but only fourteen and a half thousand that are invested in public markets um, 
And that, that number is shrinking in public markets and growing in private markets. However, what distorts the size of the two asset classes is that there is way more money in public companies than there is because the public companies are the bigger companies. So to give you an example, I think there's roughly about $5 trillion in private equity buyout funds. You compare that to a public fund. I mean, Apple alone is $3 trillion in size to, to give you some kind of sense. So actually, private equity is a lot smaller than I think people um, anticipate, you know, would necessarily think it is. Um, so it's not the kind of, you know, the larger, all-powerful, you know, kind of asset class. The other thing to consider as well when you think about the two, and I think one of the reasons why there is sometimes quite a negative view of it is it's inaccessible. It's not available to us, and therefore, as as kind of private investors, but actually, it's the same funds that back private equity, they invest in private equity funds, as are invested in you know some public equity. So, I mean, to that point, you know the a large number of the investors in the Oakley Capital Funds, for example, are, you know, pension funds, insurance funds, the very same funds that are invested in um, FTSE listed shares, um, for example. And then to get to your point, which is around, you know, kind of the asset stripping, you know, point, I mean, it, again, because there are lots of different managers and lots of different products, there may be some that specialize in financial engineering, that may specialize in taking a cash cow and making it more profitable um, by removing some costs. There may be those examples, but they are not, that's not predominantly what we see within in private equity. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm most best placed to talk about only capital, but I see it in you know, many of the peers that what in many cases we're doing, we're buying exciting growth businesses. We're actually there to help you know, grow the business, invest in the business and, and watch their top line grow. And in, and in doing so, you know, the profitability of the business grows. I mean, to give you some example, I mean, of our portfolio companies, and it's not a huge, it's kind of 22 portfolio companies across the, the Oakley funds currently. Um, and, you know, they would have employed, new, you know, new, new employees of, you know, in the range of, you know, 500 to 1500 new staff in, in the, you know, kind of process of the last, you know, kind of year or so, you know, these are growing businesses, employing more people and becoming, you know, a bigger contributor um, within society. And I guess to that point, um, you know, the, they are the everyday businesses that we, you know, that we touch and interact with, you know, kind of it, private equity in the UK, you know, has backed probably, you know, 20% of the companies, um, 20% of the GDP, I should say, and which employ about 2 million employees. So it's, it's everywhere. It's not, you know, kind of, it's everyday capital now in a way that it probably wasn't 10 years ago. It was very niche, it was very specialist, and it got that, you know, kind of reputation from the, you know, the darker days of the, of the 80s and, and maybe the 90s. Yes, I mean, on, on the stock market this year, so quoted companies a lot of them have seen a sort of a decline in their share price and therefore the value of these businesses is, has declined what's actually happened with valuations for privately owned companies have you got a sort of any insight so far what's happened this year yeah i think it's harder within private with the valuations of private companies, which you don't get such a, a live report on private companies in the same way that you do um, within public. 
Um, and typically, you know, it's only when you look to sell an asset or buy an asset do you get a kind of live sense as to as to, to the valuation. I think because particularly in the kind of companies that you know that are prevalent in you know private equity funds, they tend to be kind of new economy, digitally enabled businesses that actually have have entered into this year and are, and are performing you know kind of performing well and you know kind of on target in, in many cases. So from that extent, if you're performing well and people are comfortable with you know kind of understanding the prevailing risk, then what we're seeing is generally that um, that, that you know companies are maintaining you know kind of maintaining their rating. And also what's different in the private equity world as well, the capital is kind of committed to the funds. You know, one of the things that can happen in public equity, if people panic, money is sucked out of public equity. You take money out of funds, you, you divest and you sell. Whereas in, in private equity, you know, funds are committed to funds with, for you know, 10 years. And there's a lot of dry powder, particularly within the larger kind of private equity kind of universe. And so there is more a consistent deployment of, of capital. The demand is there for, you know, for companies that are, that are performing well. Now, for companies that are, you know, might be, have a wider exposure maybe to Eastern Europe, might be, you know, vulnerable to inflation or higher interest rates, could be highly indebted, for example, or maybe cyclical businesses, if you, have, if you take a view um, that we may be going into a, a recession within Europe, then those businesses, you know, ratings will no doubt fall. There probably hasn't been many transactions in those kind of businesses at the moment for me to kind of say I've, I've seen evidence um, of that. Um, but that's, you know, that's essentially what you've, you've certainly seen um, within the public markets. The, the other point I would make on that as well is that, um, that there's quite a different approach to maybe how you know kind of companies are valued by private equity i mean one you know they're not they're, they're valued on a you know every twice a year or, or four times a year firstly secondly you know in the same way that you know public equity and particularly technology was you know really highly valued towards the end of last year you know in many cases kind of price perfection and also you know the the loss making technology business particularly were 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 rated really high with a kind of high level of hope and expectation. Whilst there might be some trickle-down effect of that into private equity, um, you, you just don't see the volatility or the range of valuations in the same way. And where I'm best placed to kind of comment on there is, if, if let's take Oakley Capital and how we value here. I mean, there's kind of a number of points to, to take. How we value is firstly, we kind of take the view that when it comes to multiples, you can only really be certain of the value of the company you invest in. The time you bought it, clearly, and then the time you sell it. In between, you are, you are purely speculating. Um, and you can use, you can try and use, you know, kind of all kinds of peers to try and rate it. You could use the public markets. You could wait, you know, you could see if transactions have taken place in similar companies. The challenge there is actually in many cases, particularly in private equity, and one of the pills of private equity, is that there often isn't many public peers you know, that you're often seeing private equity invest in sectors that are yet to be represented in the public market. I and mean, a good example for us there is education. And so if we haven't got public peers, the best, the best reference point to the multiple that that company should be on is the price we paid, paid for. So actually what you tend to find is that we tend to anchor our valuations closer to the point of the entry multiple. And yes, it may creep up over time, 
but, but relatively modestly. And then what you find is then when we sell the asset and you get that price discovery at the point when you sell it, you see a big jump in the value. So um, to that point, on average, when we sell a company, we sell it at 50% higher than we're holding it. And that's since our inception. That's through the cycle. That's since 2007. And in fact, in recent years, it's been, it's been way, way higher. Um, we're holding um, um, a portfolio of 22 companies growing circa 30, 30% a year in the last 12 months. And we're holding them at an average valuation of 14 times. And that valuation is very much, one, I mean, I hope that sounds quite a prudent conservative valuation. I mean, it's half what the NASDAQ is trading on, despite our earnings growing, you know, on average 50% faster. Um, and, and those multiples, one, they're as low as they are because of the way we source. So we're getting involved in deals that are, uh, you know, they're, they're not perfect. We're dealing with business founders. They need a lot of our, you know, resource and assistance. We're doing kind of tricky roll-ups and that kind of stuff. And in, in doing so, we get in really interesting valuations. And those interesting valuations, we essentially peg ourselves to, not strictly, but that's certainly the kind of key guide. And therefore, they're a long way from what you might see in kind of, you know, what you might have to pay for 30% growth um, in the public markets. So I know that there's more companies staying private for longer. Um, and we're certainly seeing um, sort of investment trusts and funds that would um, that would normally uh, invest predominantly in, in the sort of the, in quoted equities. In, you know, I'll go and ask shareholders and say, can we have permission to look more in the private markets as well? All of this would suggest there's a lot more competition to try um, and and you know for someone like yourself to, to sort of get the chance to invest in um, a private business. Is that does that essentially mean that you know companies when they're going out looking for money um, can be you know ask for sort of quite high levels of, you know, you, you need to rate us on a high, a high level um, in mm. order for you to, you know, to get it. Or is there, is there not a big queue of people for each investment opportunity in the private equity space? Um, I mean, look, I think the first thing you're right is that there is, I mean, this would be interesting if this tightens over the course of the kind of next six to 12 months, but you're absolutely right. One of the things that has been, you know, a kind of a luxury of, of successful, you know, small to medium-sized growing businesses is that there has been a wealth of, of capital available to them, whether it is in the public world, private world, whether it's in debt, and it's, rel- you know, it's been relatively cheap and, and kind of highly available. So that competition, you're absolutely right, has kind of continued to grow. Um, the biggest weight of capital in terms of where it's most available is in the much, much larger businesses. Um, and also when you talk about those kind of crossover funds that are now backing, you know, kind of essentially almost pre-IPO companies, you know, they've been backed by, you know, there's no control there. They've been backed by lots of different investors. They've been backed by venture capital and then they go to crossover and then they might go to IPO. All there's those big, you know, the larger pools of capital, most of the $1 trillion of dry powder that sits in private equity funds really sits in the, in the larger Fund that are you know really scaled up in the in the in the kind of last few years. I guess I guess the point I'm making there is that there is still we find still plenty of space for the way we particularly you know if, if it's an auctioned asset that's highly profitable and off scale, you're going to see a lot of competition and that competition has no doubt grown. What what we aim to do is you're working with companies that maybe aren't ready for a competitive process. 
there will be, you know, kind of difficult shareholder structures to get around that, you know, it's maybe in a, maybe family or individually owned for some time. There probably isn't perfect management information or accounts, you know, or it's a tricky kind of carve out. Either way, it's not ready for a, for an auction process. Um, and like 90% of the deals we do, we're the first kind of private capital going into these businesses. We are bringing more companies into the private equity hopper. If you look at those crossover funds, you know, these companies have been backed for quite a number of years by private capital. Um, and they've got to an interesting point of scale where, you know, you're, you're investing them prior to them maybe ready, being ready for an IPO. That's, that's very much not our world. The other thing as well is we're taking controlling stakes, which is very much different to what a crossover fund might. You know, we are the whole, one of the great appeals of backing, you know, buyout managers is that we're going to own over 50%. We're going to be, you know, at least one or two seats on the board. You know, we are, all, you know, we should have a plan in which we're going to create value within these businesses, regardless of the economic environment. You know, whether that's digitalizing them, M&A, improving senior management, stuff that's going to make these businesses, you know, grow regardless of the, of the economic environment. And that's what those, you know, particular business founders are, are looking for in that relationship. And they need a certain type of private equity manager to do that. And there's only so many of those. Frankly, the larger P funds don't want to get there. It's not efficient for them to kind of get their hands messy and creating these opportunities from, from the point of entry where we're involved. So um, to date, we've been able to do things outside of competitive processes and we've been able to deploy capital quite successfully. Where we actually find it's easier for us to deploy capital is in roll-ups. So you're buying, you know, single product subscale businesses, bringing them together, maybe to create a local champion, which in itself will be very hard to buy because of, you know, the competition for them. But if you can, you know, kind of, if you can create that from the, from the ground up, if you like, then there's a lot less competition for doing that. Well, brilliant. Stephen Tejit from Oakley Capital, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That's all from us this week. Don't miss next week's show where Tom Selby will be here discussing pensions and Dan is going to be talking to an expert about investing in Vietnam. Until then, thanks for listening. See you later. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.